Well, once again, good morning, friends. Just another welcome to you, um, especially for those of you who are new or maybe you're exploring Christian faith, you're not yet a Christian. We are going through this book, this Old Testament book called Esther. It is a wild and mysterious book. It's a story about how a Jewish woman becomes the queen of ancient Persia and uses her power to save the Jewish people. But along the way, there are twists and turns and there's lessons and it's a series we're calling Faith in Exile because we're exploring what it means to live a life of faith in a disconnected, chaotic, and uncertain world. Today, we're looking at chapter two, verses 19, through chapter three, verse five, in a sermon we're calling a countercultural faith. So I'm gonna read the text, or pray once more, and invite God to speak to us, whoever we are, wherever we're at. The book of Esther, chapter two, beginning in verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai told her to. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel or pay honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. This is God's word. Let's pray together once more. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room and those who are watching online, they matter to you. And we pray that you would speak into our lives, that you would teach us for, for those who do not yet know what the life of faith is, what it means, what it looks like, that you would show them how it all centers upon you and call them to a decision today to trust you. For those who are seeking to follow you, Father, we pray that you would teach us how to live in such a place as this, for such a time as this, in a way that is faithful and distinct, neither assimilated nor isolated. Lord, would you teach us and help us, challenge us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us, and change us for the glory of Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, the famous Charles Dickens used an interesting phrase to describe a complicated relationship to a church. When he saw a church, he called it the attraction of repulsion. It's interesting. Because on the one hand, he was repelled by church. And yet on the other hand, he had an undeniable attraction to the church. And this comes out in many of his writings. This may actually describe an attitude you might feel towards the church today. Maybe on the one hand, you're like, church is crazy. Christians are crazy. 
I'm like repelled by it. Like, I don't get it. They're confusing to me. They're weird. They like clap their hands in gatherings like this. Like, I literally don't get it. But on the other hand, maybe you're like, but yet there's like an undeniable attraction. There's something about the conviction that they have, the the way that they live and what they proclaim to believe and the hope that they have and the way that they serve. There's an attraction there. That may describe you or maybe your family and your friends. Well, if you understand the nature of Christianity properly, then this reaction totally makes sense. Because if you are living the life of Christian faith, there will be certain aspects of your life that some will see and admire and perhaps even be drawn to. And yet, at the same time, if you are living the Christian life, a life of faith, there will simultaneously be other aspects of your life that will challenge and even offend people all at the same time. It's called the countercultural life of faith. And listen to this historic second century letter that actually describes the unique character of Christian, Christians living in that day. A description of this countercultural life, a life that some are confused by and yet also admire. Listen to this letter that's almost 2,000 years old. Speaking of Christians, the letter says, they marry like everyone else and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but they do not share a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. What a beautiful description of the countercultural nature of the Christian life. See, if you are living as God intended, your life will invite both animosity and attraction. It's a both and, not an either or. And if you're only evoking one or another, then something is wrong. If you're a Christian and your life only invites animosity and you're like proud of it, proud of your persecution, something's wrong. You're like, everyone hates me, I love it. I alone am living faithfully in this world where everyone hates me and that's like your badge of honor. It's like, well, maybe (laughs) something's missing. But then on the other hand, if you're like, everyone loves me. Everyone agrees with everything I say. I must be killing it at the Christian life. Well, (laughs) maybe not. Because if you're living a distinct life of faith, there's going to be both. Why? Why? That's the question I want us to ask this morning. Why is it that the life of faith draws this kind of response, both attraction and animosity? Why is that actually a good thing? And what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me to live a countercultural life? Well, few Old Testament accounts capture this idea, this tension, like the book of Esther. Again, this is a story, an ancient story, of how the courage of one woman saved an entire people from genocide. For that reason alone, it is remarkable. But as I said, it's a story with twists and turns, throughout which we find lessons for all of us regarding how we live a life of faith in a disconnected world. Esther is among the hundreds of young women who are all taken from their homes into the harem, the palace of one of the most powerful rulers at that time of the Persian Empire, King Xerxes. Why? All these women, they were candidates for the role of queen because the previous queen, Vashti, was, well, we'll say she was fired. Read chapter one. And the winner would be the one who pleased him most. It's like a twisted version of The Bachelor. And Esther wins. Verse 17 and 18 of chapter two. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. 
And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And thus, the plot thickens. Esther is now crowned queen and will learn in this story that she will go on to use her position to save the Jewish people. But for now, she's just been crowned and her older cousin Mordecai, who raised her because she had neither mother nor father, he checks in on her to see how she's doing. Now up to this point, we must be careful about insisting that Esther and Mordecai have been living wonderfully, exemplary lives of faith. There's too many questions. Why were they not practicing regular and public rhythms of prayer and worship and Sabbath? Why is it that they hid their identity? You could make the argument up to this point in the book of Esther that Mordecai and Esther had all but assimilated into Persian culture. And for that reason, at times, our main characters, Esther and Mordecai, are cautionary tales warning us against living compromised lives where we are so assimilated into the culture that we are simply going with the flow without any kind of distinction at all whatsoever. It's a temptation for all of us. But at other times, we'll see, like we will today, they are examples of courage And above and beneath it all, God is working out a plan through imperfect people. And in this passage, we begin to see an example of a distinct life. Here, I want you to notice what we see is a blend of choices and attitudes that normally do not go together. They normally don't go together. They are a blend of choices and attitudes that will evoke both attraction and animosity at the same time. And the reason, friends, it's important to notice this because if you are to be a follower of Jesus, it's the same blend of choices and attitudes that other people should see in your life. They should see within this community if we are indeed living a life of faith. They're the evidence. So what are those choices? What are those attitudes that reflect a countercultural life? Well, the first is this. A countercultural faith seeks the common good. A countercultural faith will seek the common good of people around us. Anyone coming to see the king back in those days or generally involved themselves in the politics of the city, they would enter in through the king's gate. It's where all the business happened. In fact, if you wanted to have culture-shaping influence, this is where you would be. And this is where Mordecai was. Verse 19 again. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Was it good or bad for him to be at the king's gate? Was it good or bad for him to be near the, the center of power? And how did he get there? Did he compromise in order to find that position of power in the Persian Empire? We're not told. We simply don't know. Certainly no one knew about his Jewish heritage, that he was a Jew and belonged to the God of the Bible. In fact, it was on his advice that Esther, who is now queen, concealed her own identity. Look at verse 20. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. So yes, on the one hand, there are questions about compromise. Like how were Esther and Mordecai previously living? How did they get into these positions of power? However, in this episode we begin to see actions that do reflect the people of God. Actions which seek 
the common good. Well, in what way? Well, our story tells us because as the narrative goes on, laws are about to be broken. A life is about to be taken, namely the life of the king himself. Look at verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What should Mordecai do? If you're new or just joining us, you need to know this. King Xerxes was an idiot. Shorthand, but go read chapter one. He never does anything without the approval and opinions of other people. And the question here is Mordecai is now privy to this information that there is an assassination plot against this pagan king. What would he do? Will Mordecai seek the good of one who is bad? There's a question for you. And more broadly speaking, friends, should you do good things to those who do not deserve it? I know most of us in this room would say, well, of course, but we don't always live like it. Right? Oftentimes we're like evaluating whether or not another person in your neighborhood or your community is worthy of your good deeds. You're like, well, I don't know. I don't know if they are entitled to my good works. I don't know if they fulfill my, my list of righteous requirements because after all, their beliefs are a little sketchy. And therefore, I don't know if I should offer or withhold my good deeds. It's an honest question. Should you do good even for people who don't deserve it? Should you serve your city or this county even though many in this county do not agree with you on many things? Uh-oh. <laughs> well, here, Mordecai gives us a glimpse of what scripture teaches. You see, protecting the king was actually in line with what God had commanded. After all, the murder of an emperor regardless of his character, would actually bring about chaos and most likely an all-out war. So what does Mordecai do? Verse 22 to 23. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled. By the way, I warned you in the first series, there's a lot of impaling in this story. They were impaled on poles or crucified publicly. You could render it. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Why does Mordecai protect the king? Why does Mordecai seek the good or even the stability of this Persian government? We have to go back to the rest of the Old Testament. How did God call the Jewish people to live even when they were in a time of exile, when they were the ones in the margin, when they were the ones who were not in a position of power? See, to acknowledge the king or the general idea of government was something that the people of Israel were called to do. You see, decades before this time of Esther and Mordecai, the Jewish people were warned by God time and time again that if they turned away from God and as a nation ceased to live by God's laws and commands, that they would, as a consequence, be carried off into captivity. And sure enough, they were in 586 BC. The people of Israel were carried off into captivity. But in anticipation of that, God spake, spoke through his prophets guiding them as to how they were to live in that time of exile. Hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah. What were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to kind of live off the grid and never have contact with the, the, the Persian culture? Were they to agree with it entirely? Notice the direction that God himself gives to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29 of his letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What should you do? Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Some of you love that. You're like, yes, it's biblical. And eat what they produce. 
marry and have sons and daughters. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it it prospers, you too will prosper. Fascinating advice. I want you to live there. You can even settle down, put down roots. But I want you to seek the true peace and prosperity of the city. I want you to actually pray for this city. Friends, what we see there in Jeremiah 29 and what we see embodied in Mordecai is this. Generally speaking, following the laws of the land did not for Mordecai and does not for us mean that you approve of the character of those who rule. That'll be a fun topic for your community group discussion later on this week. Because you are following the laws of the land does not automatically mean that you approve with all the decisions or the character of those who are in positions of power, government, or authority. In the same way, the New Testament tells Christians to live these distinct lives. In a world in which Christianity was illegal and Christians had no power in the ancient world 2,000 years ago, Caesar ruled. It was the world of the Greco-Roman Empire and yet Christians were called to be good citizens and as they were able with conviction to follow the laws of the land. And in that, it is important to note that God does not endorse the form of government He endorses the concept of government. There's not one particular style of government that God's like, yes, this is my kingdom. And I'm reminded of the pithy words of Winston Churchill who said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. We live in a fallen world. It's never gonna, God is not endorsing that that particular government for that particular time and place and nation in which you live is like perfect and that's why you should follow the laws. God always acknowledges that we live in a fallen world. But anarchy and chaos are not better. So we're told to live a distinct life of faith, we seek the common good. One of the ways in which we do that is by being good citizens. So that means, friends, this week, Hopefully not, but if you're pulled over for running a red light, don't roll down your window and say, my kingdom is not of this world. (laughs) Like, yeah, you ran a red light. You're like, two kingdoms, two kingdoms. Mordecai here in this moment is in line with scripture and a model for us. We embrace common grace and we seek the common good. We seek to be and involve ourselves in things which will enable the people around us to flourish regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their background, regardless of whether or not you think they deserve it. We're called to work for the peace, security, and justice of the place in which we live, loving in word and in deed, regardless of their background. Just as God called the Jews not just to like live in the city, but to work for its peace. We too, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to be passionate about good works. More than just law abiding, we're to be eager, we're to be zealous, we're to be passionate about serving. If I'm honest, I don't know if that describes my attitude. But then I read a passage like this from the Apostle Paul in his letter to Pastor Titus in the New Testament. Look at what he says. Says to the church, living in this like pagan society. He says, remind them, he's speaking to Christians here, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, or some translations say eager to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. There's a scripture verse for your refrigerator magnet right? That's a good one. God, am I eager to do good works? Am I, is that the way that I like view my life living in Ventura County? Am I rearranging my priorities, my talents, my gifts and abilities for the glory of God and for the good of others because God has called me on mission? I say that because few of us, few people in general, you might say, live intentionally in a place like Ventura County for the good of others. 
Oftentimes, there's a lot of other reasons. They're not necessarily bad reasons. I like the weather. The beach is near. <laughs> like, yeah, these aren't bad things. They're, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with the beach. It's great. But is that like the reason why you live and why you put down roots in a place? Because it's cheap. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's not true. It's California. See, oftentimes, so many people, where they choose to live, how they choose to engage is entirely based on how much they love the climate or hate the climate, how much they love the politics or hate the politics, how much they, they, they love you know, the particular culture of that area or how much they hate that particular culture in that area. What is the reason why we should engage with where we live? It's call and it's mission. We're not consumers, Right? We're not tourists. One of the ways in which God reminded me and my family of this is, as many of you know, we moved from LA to, to live in London for five years to plant a church. And it was a great conversation starter when anyone's like, oh, why'd you move here? You know, I'm like, oh, well, I, I'm a monarchist now. And like, you know, I just thought it'd be better to like live in England. You know, I just, I really like that. And, you know, I kind of like the, the healthcare and the European Union. Oh, you just left the European Union, okay, I can't even use that as, as an example anymore. Like, why did we move there? God called us to move there to preach the gospel. God called us to move there to serve the, the people around us. And I believe that one of the things that so often gets lost, I know for me, in the daily grind of life is that sense of mission and sentness. If we are to move to one area or stay in another, Jesus, are you calling me here? And if so, how do you want me to live? How is it that you want me to live? Because my life is not about what I want. It's about what Christ wants. So are we seeking the common good? Or are we isolated from the people around us? Maybe even feeling self-righteous about it. Or are we functioning just as consumers? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Now, up to this point, some of you are like, yeah, I love that. And other people are like, I don't know. Where do you draw the line? That is a great question. And it leads nicely into my second point. First, to live a countercultural life of faith means seeking the common good. The way in which we see that, that, that Mordecai protects the life of a king, even though he didn't agree with the character and choices of the king. On the one hand, there's going to be an attractiveness about the life that you live as you're seeking the common and good. But also, as you seek to live faithfully, your life will also evoke animosity. If your life is built on truth, you'll be seeking the common good, which may at times be attractive, but also it might be offensive. Why? Because secondly, the countercultural life of faith challenges the idols. A countercultural life of faith challenges the idols. Mordecai indeed stops this assassination attempt by reporting it to Queen Esther, who in turn tells Xerxes. Mordecai stops the plot. And now, what happens to the plotters? They are crucified publicly. That's an important detail because it will show us, the readers, what Esther and Mordecai will be up against if they ever challenge the king. What happens when you sin against the king? What happens when you challenge the king? You get crucified publicly. That's the point. But here, what happens to Mordecai when he protects the king? Acts of loyalty like this usually are rewarded. But in this case, he is not. Instead, there's a plot twist. Instead of Mordecai being rewarded, we're introduced to another character. His name is Haman. More on him next week. You're like, ooh, I'm gonna come back. It's so exciting. <laughs> but it is worth noting, as we're told in the text, that Haman is an Agagite. And if you're new to the Bible, you're like, yes. Wait, what? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? He's an Agagite or an Amalekite. The reason that's an important little detail is because the Amalekites or the Agagites were the historic enemies of the Jewish people. They were the enemies of the Jewish people. You can read about their history in other parts of the Old Testament. And there's a tension that we're introduced here that will lead to the main plot 
for the rest of the book because Haman will indeed oppose the Jewish people. But for now, here, we are simply told that Haman is promoted and that he should be revered. No doubt, the king at this moment in time, after hearing about his assassination plot, is paranoid. And so he puts a lot of power into the hands of one man. Look at chapter three, verse one. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Haman, we will discover, loves the spotlight, hence the bowing. But Mordecai refuses to bow. Verse two, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Why? Why did Mordecai refuse? Well, it's helpful to know that in this context, this bowing was more than just simply acknowledging a person in authority. Haman now embodied the idolatry of power. In a world, if you, if you read your history, in a world where this kind of authority was actually linked to divinity, so the bowing down was acknowledging him almost as a god. Bowing to this kind of power was more than simply an act of acknowledgement. It was an act of worship. And Mordecai says, no, he was challenging the idol. This was not simply a matter of his own personal conscience. He was rejecting idolatry. He also knew that Haman was an Agagite, an enemy of the Jewish people. And so we're given the reason in verses three through four. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them, and here's the big reveal, that he was a Jew. This is not resistance for its own sake. This is not simply Mordecai sticking it to the man, as it were. In fact, refusing to acknowledge this idol of power is actually a good thing for the common good because as we will see in this story, whenever a culture idolizes power, it will bring about destruction. In fact, when you idolize anything, it will always bring about destruction. If you idolize success, it will bring about destruction. If you idolize beauty, make it the most important thing in your life, it will bring about destruction. Whether slow or subtle, it will come. When God forbids idolatry, God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy like, I will create humanity and I want none of them to have fun. No, when we abuse things, when we make idols out of things. We're dishonoring God. We're dishonoring our own design and bringing destruction not only into our lives, but the lives of other people around us. That's why idolatry is sin. So what does Mordecai do? He draws a line. Now, in as much as I've just said, we seek the common good. We seek to be good citizens in the place that Christ has called us to live. Some of you rightly ask, where do I draw the line? Well, that's a great question. And there's a simple principle that's always helped me. When do I draw the line? Well, to put it simply, it's this. When the law forbids what God commands or when the law commands what God forbids, that's when you draw the line. Let me say it again. Where do I draw the line? Like, how do I know? Because there's a lot of debate about it. Where do I draw the line? You draw the line when the law forbids what God commands or when the law commands what God forbids. Now that's not always clear. Hence why Christians debate about over a lot of things. Like, oh, I don't know, I think this is a little more here or a little more there. I'll tell you what right now, when you talk to your brothers and sisters who live in other countries where you are forbidden by law to preach the name of Jesus Christ, you draw a line. 
When you are living in another country where the law says you are forbidden to pray or you are commanded to murder or you are commanded to do evil, you draw the line. And we have brothers and sisters who live in parts of the world who draw their line in courage and in doing so, they challenge the idols like the men and women did in the early church in Acts chapter four when the authorities told Peter, John, and the other Christians that they were not to preach in the name of Jesus and the disciples responded by saying, hey, whether it is better for us to obey man or obey God, you can decide that for yourselves. As for us, we are gonna preach the name of Jesus for we cannot help but we, what we have seen and heard to preach that. That is what we are called to do. When that's clear, you draw the line, and in doing so, you are challenging the idol. It's not just a matter of your personal conscience, it's actually the good and right thing because idols will destroy. Jesus saves. He draws a line. So on the one hand, and notice here, friends, on the one hand, the truth, following Jesus, living the life of faith, will lead you to seek the common good. We're not consumers and we're not tourists. We live where we live on mission and we follow the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. We believe our neighbors are men and women who are made in the image of God. And yet, on the other hand, we're told that humanity has fallen, that we are all sinful. And left to our own devices, we replace God with our own creation. And when power is worshiped, refusal to participate in the same way will present a challenge. Like when success is worshiped or pursued at any cost, resisting that in your workplace will demonstrate to them that this is not God's purpose. We will soon see that what Mordecai challenged was an abuse of power, which would actually threaten to destroy the lives of many but I want you to notice the manner in which he did so. What did he do? What did his challenge look like? He simply refused to worship. There's a dignity to his challenge. Now for some of us, this all presents a challenge. Some of us are gonna be more than likely to skip one of these attributes and embrace the other. Maybe some of us this morning, we're just afraid to present a challenge to anyone or anything because let's be honest, we like to be liked. We like the approval of people. We don't wanna rock the boat. And so for some of us, there's little to no resistance at all whatsoever. And maybe that's you right now. You're just going with the flow so much so that there's no distinction in your life. Friend, if that is you, the Holy Spirit would say, not only is this wrong, it's actually unloving. Because it's unloving to not share the truth. It's actually unloving to not challenge an idol. Because idols destroy. And what I want you to see, what I need to see, the combination here, seeking the common good, and challenging the idols, speaking the truth in love. Yes, putting up with persecution like Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, but also letting your good works shine in such a way that people see them and glorify your father who is in heaven. So my question for us, for myself, which error am I most tempted toward? Do I so value the praise of people that I'm unwilling to challenge an idol? Or do I love the challenge so much that I've actually forgotten that I should like serve and love people regardless of their, their background and belief and that in doing so, it's actually a reflection of the grace of God who came to seek and save us even though we weren't deserving of it. The God who allows the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. I want you to see the combination. And as a church, this is what we're trying to embrace, that combination together that will at times draw both attraction and animosity as we seek the common good and as we challenge the idols. But as we do that, you've got to know that you are embracing risk. And that's the third point. A countercultural faith 
embraces the risk. What happens to Mordecai? Well, even when you seek the common good, and even when you challenge the idols at the same time, know this, friends, results may vary. Right, you ever go and buy a product, and you're like, oh, this is gonna like make my hair like golden, and it's like, results may vary. Well, when it comes to living this distinct life of faith, you never know how it's gonna turn out. Sometimes results may vary. Look at verse five, what happens? When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. The countercultural life is a risky life. And I wanna note three risks. One is the risk of being overlooked. If you seek the common good and challenge the idols at the same time, it can be bitterly frustrating that even when the good you do goes unnoticed. Or even worse, when those who overlook your deeds are even less deserving of the good you've done to them. This was certainly the case with Mordecai, and it will often be the case for us. So if we're looking to be noticed, we need to reckon with that today and be honest about that before God. Like, God, so many of my decisions are based on my desire to be noticed. But if you embrace this countercultural life of faith, we embrace the risk of being unnoticed. Secondly, there's the risk of being unrewarded. Mordecai suffered humiliation. He was deprived of his rightful reward after putting himself at risk to save the king's life. And yet we're reminded again and again that these things will happen if you seek to live the life of faith and that forbearance is required. So if you're looking for reward, if you're looking for applause, you need to build up forbearance. And to add insult to injury, the one person who was being honored and who was being rewarded, Haman, is the very person who would go on to seek Mordecai's destruction. And that's the third risk, a risk that many of us struggle with, the risk of rejection. See, many of us, we conceal our true identity as followers of Jesus simply because we fear rejection. Or some of you, you're not yet Christians and you believe it to be true. The gospel has been preached to you, but the reason you haven't accepted Jesus as Lord is because you fear being rejected by your friends or your family. And we need to be honest about that this morning. There may be some of us in this place. We're concealing our faith up until the point in where something really, 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 really wrong is presented to you. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm a Christian. You're like, what? I'm a Christian. Let's just say I'm, Busy on Sundays. (laughs) Oh, that's why you never come to the beach. You always say like, oh, I got a thing. And the people around you are like, what? We don't know if this was the case for Mordecai, but it could have been that he feared rejection. But at some point, friends, you have to draw the line. Being faithful to God means embracing the risks that come with it while acknowledging that the rejection, the disregard, and the injustice hurts. But that's why, that is why you need Jesus as both the foundation and the motivation for this countercultural life of faith. Because in many ways, we as humanity are, are pictured here in this story. We are like the two officers who plotted to get rid of the true king. The true king is Jesus Christ. He's the righteous king. And we have all strayed in sin. We have all tried to replace God with our own idols. But oh, here's the incredible news of the gospel. It's so counterculture. To the question when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come for us, will he confront the bad that we have done? Yes. But will he also show good to those who don't deserve it? Yes. You're like, how can he do both? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. In response to our plot to replace the true king, Jesus did not come to crucify sinful humanity. Jesus came to be crucified by and for sinful humanity. To all of those who have plotted against him, Jesus, as he's hanging there on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And Jesus rose again on the third day to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And to everyone who believes in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are saved, you are accepted. And it's because of Jesus that we can live this countercultural life of faith. If you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, today is the day of salvation for you. You are invited to put your faith in Jesus. He's the only one that can save you, the only one that can forgive you, the only one that can enable you to live as you were created to live. And for those who do follow Jesus, it's in Jesus. I want to give you these reminders as we now prepare to respond in worship. It's in Jesus that we find the compassion to seek the common good. All those people, all of your neighbors, the people you work with, even the people that drive you absolutely insane, you're like, are they worthy of my love? The next time you say that, think of your own life. Jesus did not look down at you and say, are they worthy of my love? If Jesus said that about every one of us, he never would have come. He said, in spite of the fact that they aren't worthy, I'm gonna come anyway because I love them. When you look around at your neighbor, friend, remember Remember that. See, when we're new Christians, we know like, I deserve nothing. But then you're a Christian for like 20 years, like, well, I kind of deserve stuff. (laughs) Like we forget that it's grace. It's by grace you've been saved. And when you die and breathe your last and face Jesus Christ on that day, you're not gonna say like, oh yeah, it was my good works that got me in. No, it's grace you are saved. And by grace, you will be brought into the new creation. And that gives you compassion for the people around you now. It is in Jesus that we find the conviction to challenge the idols. Why? Because in Jesus, he perfectly resisted sin. He perfectly challenged the idols and was willing to be rejected all the way to the point of dying on a cross for us. And it is in Jesus that we find the courage to take the risks. Today, some of you are afraid to start with Jesus, to start a relationship. You're like, oh, what are my friends gonna think? You know what? Just swallow your pride Embrace the risk and trust Jesus today. You will never regret it. It's the greatest decision you will ever make in your life. And for those of you who are following Jesus, yes, there's risk. It may even cost you your job at times to live in integrity according with scripture. But Jesus says to you, take the risk, lose it all. The worst you could lose is what is temporary. What I give to you is eternal. Jesus says, take the risk. I want to encourage you to give your lives radically for the purposes of God. Mordecai took the risk not knowing how the story would end. But as I read this, I think, oh, if he only knew how the story would end. But friends, you and I can take the risk of the life of faith precisely because we do know how the story ends. Jesus is victorious. He will remake the world. He will bring us into his resurrection life with him in glory. And so he says this in one of his parables. I love this. In Luke 14, Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He says, go and do these things for other people, even when, or even because they cannot repay you. Why? It's because of what you know will happen in the future that you can take the risk of a countercultural life of faith in the present. Friends, you may be overlooked in this life, but you will never be overlooked by Jesus. You may go unrewarded in this life, but you will never be unrewarded in Christ. He is your eternal reward. And you may be rejected in this life, but you will never be rejected by Jesus if you accept him by faith because he accepts you by grace. So take the risk, amen? Take the risk. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now your Holy Spirit would reveal to every single heart in this room and watching online the worth of Jesus Christ. How worthy your son is of our affection. How powerful the name of Jesus is. How powerful your spirit is at work in our lives and that that would cause us to willingly and gladly embrace the risk of the life that you've called us to live. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with that. Maybe it's the power of the the fear of man that controls them. Or maybe on the other hand, it's like a total lack of compassion for their neighbor. Spirit of God, would you change us? And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that right now your spirit would bring the truth and cause it to come alive to every heart. That they right now from their seat would say, Jesus, 
I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again on the third day. I believe that you forgive me and save me and I put my trust in you. May we all celebrate Jesus right now. And may we be changed as a result. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this moment right now is a time for us to respond. It's not a time for us to check out or check our phones or be thinking about the next thing that's gonna happen in, the, in this day. It's a time to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And I'm reminded that even these practices, in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to come and to worship and you can, you can kneel, you can lift your hands, take communion, which is our public profession of saying, I'm feeding on Christ. He's my savior. I'm declaring it. I need to be nourished by this. I'm making a public declaration by eating the bread and drinking the cup, remembering he died for me and he rose for me. There are men and women here to my right and to my left with the prayer lanyards. They're here to pray with you. They're here to pray for you. Where do you need courage? Where do you need compassion? Where do you need conviction? Where do you need healing or direction or guidance or counsel? God says, my door is open. We believe in the power of prayer. And what I'm reminded of, friends, as I encourage you to respond right now, is we're not gonna drift into courage. We're not gonna drift into compassion. It's not just gonna happen as we're spectators. We're not gonna drift into conviction. We're not gonna drift into maturity in Christ-likeness. It's as we receive the truth and respond to the truth. That's what I'm inviting you right now is the Holy Spirit is speaking and moving. Listen to his voice and don't resist. Say like, I'm gonna take communion. I'm gonna get prayer. I'm gonna lift my hands because Jesus, you are worth it. And it's as we center on Jesus and acknowledge his worth and his beauty and his power and his salvation, we will be changed. Amen? So let's do that now.